The Bob Murphy Show, Episode 71. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. My guest today is Mark Thornton. He is a senior fellow at the Mises Institute. He serves as the book review editor of the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics. Some of his publications include The Economics of Prohibition from back in 1991, Tariffs, Blockades, and Inflation, The Economics of the Civil War from 2004, and most recently in 2018, The Skyscraper Curse and How Austrian Economists Predicted Every Major Crisis of the Last Century. I've known Mark ever since I started going to the Mises Institute, but those are his formal credentials. Now, the reason I wanted him on the show today is for his expertise on the economics of slavery, particularly in the American South. And the context here, just let me take a moment to explain. I recently wrote a piece for the Mises Institute, for Mises.org, their online outlet, where I was responding to some of the leftist historians who lately have been arguing that capitalism and slavery are inextricably linked, and that in particular, the U.S. owes its prosperity to the legacy of slavery. And so I was pushing back against that claim, saying, actually, since you're bringing it up, that's wrong. Slavery made the United States poorer than it otherwise would have been. And so my specific claim was that if owners of slaves in, let's say, the year 1840 had just suddenly had pangs of guilt and freed all their slaves, then the U.S. economy would have performed even better. The average American would have been richer, if you checked in like the year 1900, than actually occurred historically, right? That getting rid of slavery earlier would have made the U.S. even richer when you checked in at some future date. And so far from saying U.S. prosperity today is based on the legacy of slavery, I would say, no, slavery makes America today poorer than it otherwise would have been. And then even if you want to isolate and say the average white person is hurt by it. All right. And so Mark and I will, will flesh out some of those claims. But let me just read to you in my article. I had this passage from Mises and Human Action that is relevant here. So let me just read this. So again, this is Mises in human action. The abolition of slavery and serfdom is to be attributed neither to the teachings of theologians and moralists, nor to weakness or generosity on the part of the masters. There were among the teachers of religion and ethics as many eloquent defenders of bondage as opponents. Servile labor disappeared because it could not stand the competition of free labor its unprofitability sealed its doom in the market economy. And so, that, again, that's from Human Action. That was page 625. So a provocative claim from Mises, and it's that type of thing that Mark and I are going to be discussing now. Hope you enjoy it. Well, Mark, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, Bob, it's great to be on with you. So as I've already prepped the listeners um, with my opening remarks here, 
I, I want them to, I want you to come in because you actually aren't just making sweeping qualitative statements the way I was. And, you know, I was quoting Mises being very authoritatively. And so the obvious uh, response that you get from people from, especially like progressive leftists who disagree with, with where Mises is coming from is they'll say, well, w- well, wait a minute. If slavery was so economically inefficient and it's such a backward institution, then why did it take a civil war to get rid of it? If, if Mises were right in his analysis, you'd think slavery would have just withered on the vine on its own, and yet it stuck around for a long time. So clearly, this guy is just you know blowing smoke. And and you've written a lot on this stuff, so I'll turn it over to you in terms of which uh, how you want to take this. Well, in response to the new economic historians, the modern economic historians who use econometrics, uh, prior to that, and they feel that slavery is profitable, they think it's efficient, they think it would never have gone away, and their econometric results prove that. But if you go back further in time, you see slave societies dying, uh, slavery dying, slow deaths very often, but eventual deaths. And of course, slavery died worldwide in the 19th century. And And they're only like Two major wars, right? Like the, the U.S. And, and one other area, was there like a major slave uprising? Yes, in Haiti. Uh, the, the slaves rebelled against the French. Uh, they threw the French out. Uh, and the French made them pay reparations for more than 100 years afterwards. And that's one of the reasons why Haiti is so poor uh, as a result of, you know, being exploited essentially by the French as slaves and then as free citizens uh, for a very long time, for generations really. And so I took this old perspective, the economic history perspective, uh, where slavery is inefficient, uh, it's unprofitable, and that it should naturally die uh, very often a slow death, but uh, it does disappear. And so basically I've been, you know, looking at the new economic historians, the cleometricians, uh, and showing that their arguments are wrong and that their data is bad and just every facet of their argument is incorrect. Now, the fact is, is that in the antebellum South, slavery was seemingly very profitable. But the issue is not that uh, slavery is profitable, but what actually causes slavery to be profitable? Now, we know that the slave hunter who captures slaves and sells them is clearly making a profit. But after that, we expect that uh, the net present value of slaves and breeding slaves, uh, the profitability issue, uh, a profit above any normal profit, should be basically competed away. And so can I, can I stop you, Mark, and just make sure the listeners are getting that? Because this is a critical point that, yeah, I think the average person, when they're thinking about who benefits from slavery, they think the primary beneficiary from stealing that labor is the plantation owner. When no, as you say, if no, the plantation owner acquired slaves like at an auction, he fully took into account the excess, you know, surplus he was going to get from the slaves labor compared to like how much it costs to house and feed them and, you know, have security so they can't run away, that kind of stuff. And that was fully reflected in the purchase price. So it's not that the slave owner was the specific beneficiary of that stolen labor. That's absolutely correct, Bob. And so when we look at the period, say, from 1830 to 1860, we do, however, see signs of enormous profitability. The question is, what's causing that? And what I've argued 
And uh, what others have argued is that it's not slavery per se that created higher slave prices, higher land prices, uh, higher profits from growing and selling cotton. It was other factors besides slavery. And slavery uh, on its own, you basically have uninspired uh, workers without great incentives to work. And you still have to manage the security of your slaves as well because they represent a very large investment. The plantation owner's largest investment was in slaves themselves. And the the funny thing about um, slaves as an asset is that they can run away on their own. And so this plantation slave owners had to protect that. And that means there's an added cost uh, as compared to free labor, which very often has incentives uh, and requires no uh, security other than basic management, basic direction. And so the management costs of slavery are much higher than free labor, and slave labor is uh, uninspired and doesn't have the incentives that uh, free market labor has. And so we look for other reasons why slavery during this period, uh, or at least slave-based plantation agriculture, was very profitable. And what we found when we looked at this is that there was a whole host of government interventions uh, in the slave states that helped make uh, slave labor or slave labor-based plantation agriculture uh, very profitable because in one instance, for example, the slave patrol statutes uh, that were enacted in southern states in the early 19th century and gradually strengthened and, and upgraded over the decades basically drafted free white men uh, in the southern states to patrol uh, around plantations to try to detect runaway slaves um, and to return them to their owners. So it was a draft uh, of the population and a transfer from that population to the plantation owners, uh, which in effect got a free security force um, to you know, provide security to maintain the slaves on the plantation and to hunt down uh, slaves that actually did get away. And so that's just one statute common in the slave states uh, that uh, was a transfer that obviously helped out uh, the plantation owners at the expense uh, of the general population. And that's just one Mm -hmm. statute amongst all of the slave codes that helped reinforce the profitability of those plantations. Can I stop you for a second, Mark? Let me just make sure the listener is understanding, you know, the the broader argument here in the context of these observations you're making. So what the the basic underlying dispute is, at least with these particular, you know, new left historians or the, you know, the economic approach to slavery is they're saying, you know, you right wingers that you love capitalism and your free markets. Well, Slavery, you know, let's not forget that the founders who laid down the foundations of this system that you extol in your writings and speeches to gullible Republicans, let's not forget the founders owned slaves and slavery was inherent in the system. And it wasn't just this aberration that no capitalism was built on slavery or the two went hand in hand and it was a vibrant institution and your uh, blessed free markets were fine with slavery. And so it was an integral part of it. And so if you point out that, well, no, actually, 
it was government intervention. So it wasn't like there was just total laissez-faire except for this odd institution where human beings are property, you know, have there's property titles to other human beings that different people can own. It wasn't like that was the one thing that was a bit weird and then it was total laissez-faire. You're saying, no, there were government interventions propping up that system. And so if there hadn't been those slave codes, then it would be the, the plantation owners who would have had to pay out of pocket to hire these free white men to come patrol and look for runaway slaves. And so that would have obviously increased the cost of running a plantation based on slave labor vis-a-vis your neighbor down the street who was just using free men, hiring them to do harvesting. They would show up hat in hand willing to work for you. They wouldn't be trying to run away. They'd want a job. And so that's the fundamental difference or one of the fundamental differences between slavery. So, of course, you can't blame capitalism if, if it's government intervention that's partly subsidizing slavery. That's absolutely correct, Bob. But if you read papers of the Cleometricians, these new economic historians, uh, where they introduced the use of econometrics and model building, you'd never know any of that. They just uh, take the numbers regarding the price of slaves, the price of cotton, do an accounting exercise and find out, yes, uh, plantation uh, agriculture based on slave labor, there is this good-sized profit margin. And the text, if you go back and read the first New Economic Historian paper ever by Conrad and Meyer in the Journal of Political Economy in 1958, very first one, they just refer to market forces and competitive drives and the market system. There's no hint that there could be these other government intervention forces uh, that is driving their data. Okay, so that's the point of uh, our side of the argument is that it's these government interventions that's driving the data that does actually show an accounting profit. In fact, a fairly large accounting profit. Uh, but none of that that profit wouldn't be there uh, had it not been for all of these interventions in the marketplace. And so I know another main thing that you talked about, at least some of the papers you sent me, was what's called manumission laws. So can you explain what that term means and then the relevance to this dispute? Yeah. Manumission is when a slave owner grants the slave their freedom. And this can occur for two basic reasons. One is that the slave is allowed to lease themselves out uh, to work elsewhere in the economy, to earn wages, uh, to save their money. They very often uh, would choose uh, labor that is uh, more has higher wages. And uh, so they would want to be trained. They'd want to work hard in, in order to acquire enough money to buy themselves freedom from the slave owner and then eventually buy their family's freedom uh, from the slave owner. So that's one approach that uh, was very popular in earlier societies such as Rome. Uh, the other way in which a slave could be granted their freedom from the owner would be if the slave... Uh, did some great deed, uh, saved the children from, you know, marauders uh, or whatever it happens to be, some great deed or just long-term uh, loyal service uh, would encourage uh, slave owners to grant older slaves uh, their freedom, free to live on the plantation, free to move about and so forth. So both of those ways are ways in which uh, slave owners can grant freedom to the slaves. However, in the southern states, uh, they all passed anti-manumission laws, which restricted or completely prevented 
slave owners from granting freedom to their slaves. Uh, there were severe restrictions. For example, in some s- states, you could only uh, manumit your slave if they moved out of state. Okay, so a person whose uh, whole entire life was living on a plantation, and in order to grant them their freedom, they had to move to a different state. And so the restrictions were severe. Uh, they were considered outright prohibitions. And the reason this was necessary was because, it's again, it's related to security and preventing runaway slaves, is that if white slave owners could grant black slaves their freedom uh, to move about in the state, uh, all of a sudden, instead of all black people are slaves, all white people are not slaves, all of a sudden, you've got a, a system where all black people may be slaves or not slaves. Uh, this makes uh, security, the slave patrols, much more difficult. Uh, you can't really tell if somebody's a runaway or not. And as a consequence, it makes uh, preventing runaways and capturing runaways uh, much, much more difficult. And that enhances the plantation owner's security of their slaves. Yeah, this is great stuff. So let me again I apologize, Mark, but let me paraphrase and make sure the listeners see how critical this is to the particular debate we're having with some of our friends on the left here is that so so one way, you know, if somebody wants to say, hey, is capitalism responsible for slavery or, you know, sh- should people who now extol the virtues of laissez-faire, should they be embarrassed in some sense or make excuses for slavery? Because look at this legacy. A quick way is just to say, well, no, I mean, the non-aggression principle the default position is you own your own body. So clearly slavery is a massive violation of that QED, end of story. So, and there's nothing wrong with that approach, but that seems almost like a definitional argument. And so I like the, the more challenging claim, which I fully agree with, and I think that you know Mises' writing support this, is to say even if you started out in an original situation where it was total laissez-faire and there was no government interference with property rights, but some people could have property rights in other people's bodies, right? So in other words, instead of everyone just having default self-ownership, suppose some people were literally owned and the court system recognized that just like you could own cattle. Yikes, you could own another human being, but that that system could not possibly be stable, that there were so many problems with that and you would just expect over time the market to move towards a new equilibrium where the vast majority, perhaps 100% of everyone owned his or her own body, that's what you would expect. And we, maybe later we can talk a little bit about why that is. And so that's not what happened historically. It's not like everybody just all of a sudden bought their own freedom from their uh, owners in two weeks. And so what you're pointing out here, Mark, is one of the specific interventions is it actually wasn't a, quote, free market, even putting aside the idea of, you know, is slavery even conceivable in a free market, that if it really were government not interfering with property titles, then if you owned a bunch of people and they were your slaves you would have the unfettered right to free them, to, in a sense, give the property titles back to them individually. And there were government laws against that. So clearly, you can't blame laissez-faire capitalism on that. That's that's outright, you know, that's standard government intervention with what owners can do with their property. So that's, call that what you will, but it's not capitalism. And then when you want to understand, well, why is that? Why do they have those laws? You're saying, Mark, because the slave owners knew that in general, it's going to be harder for us to have security we want it's it's easier for us to prevent runaways or to you know to return them if the slave patrols who are also being you know drafted by the government so that's another subsidy we're getting as slave owners 
if they just know if they see, you know, some black person walking around without supervision, they know that must be a runaway slave. Like if that's this the standard, it's a lot easier to catch the person and figure out where to run away from. Whereas if any pe- black person walking around for all, you know, his owner could have freed him or maybe he could have bought his own freedom, you know, six weeks ago. Now it's a much more intensive process and, you know, you got to go through it. So that's, again, it's just another government subsidy to the people who want to have large scale slavery in their operations. So again, call that what you will. And it's, you know, all this stuff, obviously it's horrifying from a moral perspective, but our point is you can't lay that at the feet of capitalism. This is clear cut textbook government intervention with property rights and what owners can do with their property to benefit a few producers at the expense of everybody else. Absolutely. And bigger picture, uh, I'm obviously totally against slavery. I'm even in the form of the income tax, I, I am totally against any kind of slavery. And But the bigger picture is, is that prior to capitalism, just about everybody was enslaved to one extent or another. You know, if you look at Russia, you look at Europe, uh, you know, all of those countries, basically they were serfs and, you know, lower class, confined to the land, without any rights. And it was only with capitalism did people start breaking away from those systems and those systems started to be reformed uh, throughout the world, really, uh, but primarily and most importantly in Europe. And so with the rise of capitalism from feudalism, uh, we see that slavery starts to die out and uh, does so fairly quickly from an historical perspective, uh, both through economic incentives as well as through ideological change which began to happen in Europe and particularly uh, in England in the late 18th century. Yeah, I think that's a great observation too you made there, Mark. Uh, And just to echo it, that especially for Americans, I mean, we're very narcissistic. It's almost like even for the the sins of humanity, Americans think we're special. We're, you know, so it's the exceptional thesis that, you know, neoconservatives have and leftists have it as well. It's almost like you'd think, slavery was invented in the U.S. South (laughs) when no, that's the standard thing that's gone back as far as records go that people have been enslaving each other. And you're right. If if you had to just do a broad sweep of history and just say what kind of economic institutions were in place, you know, in in Rome and the medieval era and so on, you've got, uh, you know, serfdom and things like this in medieval estates and then the rise of modern capitalism, huh? It kind of you need to say that where where did slavery all of a sudden just start disappearing very rapidly? It happened coincidentally, well, coincidentally with the, where uh, you know capitalism started flourishing, the industrial revolution, all those sorts of things. So even just prima facie, it looks pretty easy on paper to show that capitalism has something to do with emancipation, not with the maintenance of slavery, because slavery was doing just fine for thousands of years until capitalism came along. That's right, and if you look at the people who immigrated. Uh, to the United States or to the colonies, I should say. Uh, Those were people who were fleeing the last refuges of feudalism, you know, state churches, uh, serfdom, uh, the laws of inheritance in England and elsewhere that um, maintained the class-based systems or societies in Europe. That was slow to break down. And so there was lots of feudalism left and the people who fled Europe to the colonies were basically fleeing uh, because of those things, such as the lack of freedom of religion is a is a primary uh, case. But they also came because there was opportunity 
and there was uh, less uh, war and uh, lower taxes here, but uh, the driving force for many of those early colonists were they were fleeing from the last refuges of feudal society, class-based society. Yeah, exactly. And if we could return, you, you said something really interesting that I've been uh, dwelling on in my own thoughts on this topic. So if we could just elaborate a bit that, I mean, tell me how you feel about this, Mark, but one way perhaps of just trying to assess an economy that's characterized by many uh, large-scale plantations that rely primarily on slave labor, it's almost like there's a bunch of central planners in that region. And, you know, the labor at their disposal, the, you know, the overseer or the, you know, the plantation owner who's trying to do, they're like a, they're like a little mini Stalin and they, and they can send workers to one place to the next. And so why would you expect that to be an, an efficient system? Because who's to say that all the workers that are on plantation A, like, is that really the best place for them to be? Like, isn't it possible that's, that 10% of them ought to go in, in somewhere else? Like, maybe they should be helping to build a dam, you know, down the street. Uh, or maybe somebody else, you know, they actually would be much better being a cook somewhere, working at a restaurant. And so when you have a free and open labor market, th there's this search process and the workers are going, you know, based on their preferences, you know, maybe they, maybe you could earn more money doing something, but you'd hate it. And you'd rather be a librarian. Fair enough. But in terms of you know, there's price signals and it's the high wage rate that attracts workers to an area. So people who have the relevant skills, they go there. And and it's not obvious that the other people might not know what somebody's innate talents are. And if you're a slave on a plantation, you know, your incentive is to do the bare minimum. So now, of course, if you're a 25-year-old male with bulging muscles, they're going to know you're capable of whatever, picking more cotton than, you know, some six-year-old girl who's got the flu. And so you might get whipped if you don't pick more than... but. Still, the point is the way that the punishment system of the plantation works is they come up with a rough estimate of how much you ought to be producing and punish you if you don't. That's not going to get you to volunteer new ideas that you think of or to say, you know, actually, I have this this skill that's relatively rare. If you let me do such and such, I could produce more. Why would you even open your mouth and say that? Because you're not getting to keep it. Whereas in a free labor market, if you're capable of doing something that other people aren't, and, you know, the people are willing to pay you for it. You go and apply for that job and go demonstrate your skills because you get to keep the money. So then when we wonder, okay, that's, you know, that's, you see kind of the inefficiency of the slave approach. Again, I'm saying if you had laissez-faire, except for the fact that some people own other people, you would think that would break down real fast. That some, you know, a slave who really would be more productive working for a restaurant down the street rather than out in the fields, you know, why, why wouldn't, his owner realize, oh yeah, I, I'm going to go, instead of you doing that, why don't you go down the street and, and, and uh, be a chef or whatever, a cook, and I'll let you keep some of that. You know, in other words, because how, how are you going to get this information? And so that's what you would expect. So you would think the system would, would unravel fairly quickly. And that in order to get the slaves to sort of volunteer information and to apply maybe for new things, you would have to incentivize them. And maybe you'd say, here, you get to keep some of this money so that, this, in other words, it's a, it's a real rigid, inefficient system. It's stupid to have all these people who have no incentive in increasing output. And so, so number one, Mark, are you okay with that rough analysis? And then number two, do you think it was government intervention that stifled that process of like getting the workers, you know, to where they really ought to be to, to their most highly productive uses? No, there's no question that's correct. Uh, it was very difficult. Uh, manumission or eliminating the annu-manumission laws would have solved some of that problem. It would incentivize the slaves 
to get uh, jobs, to lease themselves out, uh, particularly looking for high-priced skilled or high-wage skilled jobs in order to buy their freedom and in order to buy the freedom of their families. Uh, that would have partially done away with that, uh, that issue, but it was a very difficult issue uh, for the plantation owners uh, to try to deal with this stuff without good market signals except for the end product. The input prices uh, was, you know, very difficult for economic calculation. But nevertheless, they still did have to make adjustments. Uh, They still had to, um, you know, decide on how much of each crop to grow uh, and what what happens when the soil becomes unfertile, uh, what happens when there's a decrease in the demand for the product. Uh, You know, if, if their boom times turn to bust times, all of a sudden... The plantation uh, owner can't make the mortgage payments. Slaves have to be sold. Sometimes families have to be broken up. Or with infertility of the soil, very often the whole plantation, including the barns and houses, had to be moved uh, very often across state lines to seek out new uh, fertile soil. And so without an effective, complete price system. It made these uh, types of moves by the plantation owner very difficult to calculate, uh, very high transaction costs, and a lot of strategy strategy (laughs) involved, uh, unfortunately, for uh, the slaves themselves. Right. And I know we we keep saying that, but again, just to make sure people understand, we're sitting here as hard-nosed, cold-blooded economists analyzing this in terms of efficiency. That's not the most important thing. I mean, if you say is is slavery wrong, yeah, it's wrong because of the humanitarian, you know, horror of it. But we're again, we're dealing with people who are advancing the argument that slavery as a system was profitable and sustainable and made economic sense if you just ignored, you know, the the moral problems with it. And we're saying no, it, it didn't. That it was actually government intervention. It was not the free market that propped this thing up. And so that's why we're dwelling on this, um, not just to sort of assuage the guilt of the standard white American, but to show that, you know, you should support capitalism. If you don't like people being in bondage, support laissez-faire capitalism, that that's the system that breaks down slavery and other forms of, of serfdom and servitude. Yes. And, and it's, um, you know, it's not just that the slaves are being abused here uh, of the very nature of slavery, but the plantation owners are getting a great benefit as a result of this intervention. It's a transfer really from the slave population and the free white population to the slave owner population. So uh, it's clearly slaves are enormous losers uh, in this whole thing. Uh, but the government intervention is a tremendous benefit to a very small number of people. And that's another lesson I think you need to take from government intervention in general is that, yes, it harms the vast majority of people in society, but it provides a tremendous benefit, an artificial benefit, a privilege, a monopoly-type privilege to a small number of people. Yeah, that's a great point, too, because some people hearing our discussion might be perplexed and say, well, gee, guys, if it's so stupid, then why did it persist? And we're we're saying it was it was beneficial, you know, for these few people, especially when they got the government to come in and, you know, do all these interventions. Just like, in general, the average person is much worse off because of war, right? When two countries go to war with each other, the vast majority in both countries are worse off. 
And so then you say, well, then why do wars keep happening? Well, because there's a you know elite few in both countries who benefit from, you know, the politicians who the public rallies behind them, the arms manufacturers, you know, maybe the bankers making loans and stuff like that. So clearly there are some beneficiaries, but on net, the population as a whole loses. And that's what we're saying here with slavery. And interestingly, too, and this has relevance for the reparations debate, we're not merely saying, which everybody would agree with, oh, yeah, the slaves lost and the slave owners benefited. But we're also saying the non-slave owning white population also lost. So it's not that white America you know, won at the expense of the, the black slaves. It's that a very small portion of white America won at the expense of everybody else, including free whites who didn't own slaves. That's right. And one empirical point with regard to the anti-manumission laws was that in the first decade of the 19th century, the free black population had a much greater growth in the population than the regular population or the slave population. And then as these anti-manumission laws went into place, the growth rate in the free black population declined. That growth rate declined below the average uh, and the uh, black slave population actually increased above the average. So that um, empirical note, it's in one of the papers, I believe, uh, gives you a sense of the impact of these an anti-manumission laws uh, in solidifying uh, slavery in a very important and unfortunate way. Well, yeah, I mean, that right there is, seems to be decisive in the issue of would this thing have gone, I mean, clearly if, if that if that trend had held up, and if you're saying if it really is the manu, anti-manumission laws that caused that switch, then you're saying the original trajectory was the percentage of slaves in the population or even as a percentage of black Americans, the percent that were actual slaves, that would have declined over time. Yes, and I, I made a calculation. I don't know if it's correct, but... <laughs> <laughs> Exponentiation's hard. <laughs> yeah, it is, uh, especially over a 60-year period. But uh, I uh, calculated that if the growth rates had been maintained uh, from that period of 1800 to 1810, if those growth rates had been maintained, um, that every slave would have been freed one and a half times by 1860. Right, yeah. And, and also, keep in mind, folks, that... that you're saying, well, wait a minute, you're just, we're not here relying on the slave owners having a moral conviction, right? It's not that they go hear a sermon and then they feel bad and they free their slaves. We're saying economically, just to hold another human being. Let me put it to you this way, folks, that, um, you know, there's a sense in which farm animals are slaves of the farmer, right? Like you got fences and stuff and maybe uh, ID tags. And if a cow gets away, you know, the neighbor brings them back. But those, you know, it's relatively easy to keep them prisoners, if you will, whereas it's much harder to keep human beings. And also, as Mises points out, when he's talking about this stuff, there's certain tasks where, you know, animals just, they have brute strength. Like there's certain things that, you know, the ox can do for you, pulling plows and things, where a human, that's not what their particular advantage lies in, not just brute strength, but using their minds and their creativity. And so, the trade-off there in terms of keeping somebody locked up and, you know, also humans are much better at escaping than, you know, a, a pig or a chicken would be because humans are very clever and, you know, and deceptive and so forth. And so and build, they can build tools. They can communicate with each other and come up with plans that involve 20 people. You know, the farm animals don't do that. So when you, you just realize there's a lot stacked against the maintenance of this system. And so when we're saying over time, manumission could have just eradicated it, 
it's again, it's not because of a moral conviction or a change of heart on the part of the owner. It's because it makes more sense. And so just think of it. How do you feel about this, Mark? Is this too simplistic? But you know, the, the slave who's working in the conventional way, he's generating a flow of net income to the owner. And so what if the owner just freed the slave and then hired him to do that and then said, okay, but you know, I'm going to, in this, in a sense, like suppose the slave's market price was a thousand dollars. Why couldn't the owner go to the slave and say, tell you what, I'll effectively lend you $1,200. You buy your freedom from me for 1200, which is more than, you know, the gut, the plantation owner down the street would pay me for you. And then over, you just keep working for me and I pay you wages. And so I'm paying you a competitive wage, which is why I would hire somebody else to come in. I don't have to house and feed you anymore. Your wages take care of that. And then over time, you pay me back the $1,200. And this is, you know, this is a, a legally binding contract. You owe me the money. The courts recognize it. And uh, and so then over time, you know, I earn $1,200 for you. So there, why would the owner agree to that? Because he's now getting 20% more market value for his piece of property. And what? And wouldn't there be a lot of slaves who would take that bargain? That, yeah, they'd have to pay for it, but they would rather be free. There's a lot of intangible benefits to being free. So you, why didn't those sorts of one-off deals happen all the time? So how, how do you feel about that, Mark? Is that too simplistic? I don't think it's too simplistic, but that's what the anti-manumission laws prevented, essentially. That's what right. would happen, mm-hmm. and that's what the anti-manumission laws uh, essentially prevented on a on a massive scale. So uh, that is one of the, you know— the slave codes, but the two important ones that we look, we've looked at empirically are the anti-manumission laws and the slave uh, patrol statutes. Uh, but there's all sorts of things in those codes. One is an owner is not allowed to teach slaves how to write or how to calculate. Uh, and, you know, normally you'd think, that well, the plantation owners would like to have, let's say, a bookkeeper or a secretary um, and that would be a great, you know, job for a slave and, uh, and so on and so forth. But they were prevented from doing so because if slaves could write, they could write out their own pass. And so they could write out their own pass. And if they ran away and they encountered a slave patrol, all they'd have to do is show the fake pass from the uh, slave owner that the slave is allowed to go into town to pick up whatever. And, uh, and so the slave codes, uh, were, uh, got down into little details like that. And those slave codes were expanded over the antebellum period. Uh, they were made more rigorous. Uh, they were more detailed and, uh, enforcement was increased, uh, penalties for violating the slave codes by the slave owners uh, were made more intense. Yeah, this is great stuff. And I, again, I, I hope folks aren't getting annoyed with me, but I want to make sure people are catching the relevance of this stuff that Mark is bringing up. Because again, just that straight, you know, the simple little thought experiment I just went through two minutes ago with the calculations and okay, the market price is what it is. Wouldn't a slave be willing to do that? And you say, well, he has no money. Okay, well, somebody would lend him the money you know, and they might charge a high interest rate, but you'd think there'd be gains from trade. Both would walk away winners. And so we're saying there's specific government interventions that Mark and his research has identified to show this is why that little thought experiment didn't work, that these arbitrage opportunities didn't get taken advantage of because government inter- of government intervention. So they can't be capitalism you're blaming. And on this one, again, as Mark's saying, these 
people, I think probably the new left and the progressives looking at this stuff, these slave codes, they would interpret it as, ah, yep, just more examples of the oppression of white America against black slaves. But no, the, the slave codes were government intervention threatening punishments to white plantation owners. They were saying, if we catch you teaching your property how to read, right, you know, taking steps to improve the value of your property to you, we will punish you. So again, clear-cut example of government intervention with business restricting what people can do with their, quote, property. So again, call that what you will. That's not laissez-faire capitalism. Well, you know, the slave owners, the plantation owners, they did um, sometimes offer incentives uh, to keep the workforce going and to keep them happy uh, to at least a limited extent. So they allowed slaves to have marriages and to keep children. Uh, presents were given to slaves uh, on religious holidays. Even monetary rewards were given so that uh, a slave could earn some money and uh, purchase things through, through the plantation owner. Um, there's some instances where uh, I've come across in my reading where uh, plantation owners would give the uh, slave foreman uh, liquor on holidays and that kind of thing. But their freedom to make choices and to make allocations was greatly restricted as a result of the slave codes. Now, do you know, Mark, um, I had read elsewhere that were there laws against immigration into some of the Southern territories? Like, I guess the, the fear being, oh, if we had too many free laborers come in, that pushes down the price of labor and therefore my, the capitalized value of my slave goes down? Um, I do not know of any laws that would prevent somebody from moving from, say, Virginia uh, to Georgia or from Georgia to Louisiana. Uh, as a matter of fact, there was uh, mass migrations uh, through the antebellum period from uh, the states of Virginia, North Carolina, uh, Tennessee, uh, to the Southwest. So places like Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas. And so, and these were massive movements of white people and black slaves. Uh, there was a massive movement. There was a integrated market. I did a paper with a couple of colleagues where we showed the prices in Richmond and Charleston and New Orleans and several other major slave markets, that the prices in those markets were integrated in the mathematical sense that price movements in one market would also be reflected in price movements in other markets. So that was a technical little paper, but it was just meant to show that in terms of moving uh, a very large volume of slaves around, uh, that that aspect uh, was actually fairly freed up and uh, was a fairly well-functioning market with respect to the migration of slavery from east to west. Okay. Well, it, it might not be a contradiction because the one I'm thinking of, I think it was in Jacobin Magazine that ironically um, there was an article there that was sort of pushing back against these like Edward Baptist and people like that from a Marxist perspective and uh, and I thought there was like a throwaway line where it, so I think what he was claiming was that like there were restrictions on white workers from whatever you know New York State moving down to Georgia. Yes, there it was. Um, whites were discouraged from migrating into the South uh, because uh, slavery suppressed wages, and uh, it also 
you know, there was a transfer from the free white population uh, to the slave owner population. So if you're a free white and you're required to go out uh, once a week at night and, you know, patrol, uh, you know, for runaway slaves, that's a cost on you. And so uh, all the benefits of slaves accruing to the plantation slave owners uh, usually imposed costs uh, on the free white population. And so I think there was a general discouragement uh, of whites migrating into the South from the free states to the North. Mm-hmm. And the reason that's relevant you know, for this issue is because I had a, a throwaway line in my article that I wrote on this stuff saying, you know, if these people are claiming that, you know, the U.S. economy was built on the back of slavery and that that's such an economic powerhouse, why is it that the North defeated the South in the Civil War, right? Shouldn't the region that was based on this economically powerful institution have crushed the North? And so I had somebody complain to me and say, well, Bob, it's because the population of the North was so much bigger. And I said, okay, but isn't that partly endogenous? Like, that's not just a fact of nature, isn't it? Partly that, yeah, the free North would attract more immigrants than the South. And so when I saw this person in Jacobin Magazine mention that, I said, okay, good. Somebody's actually, you know, helping to, I, I like it when people confirm my biases, so. Well, that's true. Uh, there was white immigration from Europe into the South, but it was very limited uh, and pretty strictly limited uh, to, you know, if you were a very poor immigrant to the United States, you tend to work in uh, urbanized areas. Uh, but generally speaking, most of the European migration, uh, particularly uh, poor people migrating, uh, was into the northern states, uh, places uh, like Pennsylvania and New York and Massachusetts. Um, those were the primary uh, stopping grounds uh, for white immigration into the United States. And, of course, you saw the population of the North uh, increased significantly compared to population growth in the South, basically. And, um, you know, that that does show up as certainly a factor in the outcome of the Civil War, but that's another issue. Mm-hmm. Hey, folks, let's take a break from my discussion with Mark to talk about the Laura Murphy report. If you want to see what my views are on the current financial mess, actions of central banks and so forth, you want to subscribe to the Lara Murphy Report. For free sample issues and information on how to subscribe, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash LMR. Now, you had another paper that was fascinating, something I hadn't even thought of. So the title was Selling Slave Families, Quote, Down the River. Can you summarize for the listeners you know, what you guys did in that? Was that did you have co-authors or was that just you? I forget. Yes, I had uh, Mark Janicek, who was my PhD student, and Brad Ewing. Mm-hmm. who's the econometrician in this group. And um, so s- selling slave families down the river, uh, breaking up of slave families was probably one of the most tragic things about being a slave other than the slavery itself. And basically, the laws of property in the South were just basically copied over to create laws uh, regarding slaves. And so, uh, slaves had no rights, any more rights than, say, cattle did. And uh, and so, you know, a, a, a slave owner could uh, break up marriages, um, could do virtually anything to slaves with impunity. And uh, one of the worst tragedies is selling slaves uh, away from their family. So selling a husband uh, and not the wife, 
uh, selling uh, older children, but not the couple. Uh, this is considered one of the great tragedies. In fact, even some people have said, well, you know, breaking up the family back in the antebellum period uh, carried over uh, into the 20th century in black America. I don't think that's a that's correct uh, because after the Civil War, the uh, black family was very strong uh, and uh, did economically much better than anybody anticipated, including the abolitionists, by the way. So this paper investigates why owners would sell families and in a way that breaks them up and puts them in different locations. And the reason we found this curious is because the main reason why slaves ran away from plantations was because one of their relatives had been sold off or they had been sold off to a plantation where they had no family or no friends. And so naturally, anybody, including us, if we were put into that situation, we'd naturally think of running away. And so it didn't seem to us like it would be in the incentive of uh, slave owners to break up families. It just didn't make any sense because if it was the number one cause or reason why slaves ran away. So again, we looked under the cover. We uh, looked at, you know, what was going on there. And what we found out was that there were a lot of forced sales where plantation owners were forced to sell their slaves because of uh, not paying their taxes, uh, not being able to pay their mortgage, uh, not being uh, going bankrupt. And uh, there was a lot of that in the antebellum South due to the business cycle. So uh, the Southern states experienced wide swings in the business cycle with massive booms and massive busts. And so during the booms, everything was great. Slave prices were high. But then when the price of cotton collapsed or the interest rates changed, uh, it left a lot of slave owners bankrupt or unable to pay their taxes. And so this would uh, the uh, county judge would demand that the slaves be turned over and auctioned off at the county auction. And uh, this is something that took place throughout the South on a regular basis. And most of it involved bringing goods from the farms to the markets and, uh, and taking that money and buying farm implements and cloth and other things in the small towns, the county seat. But one aspect of it was that the sheriff would be auctioning off uh, property that was uh, lost as a result of not paying your taxes, going bankrupt, or uh, not being able to pay your mortgage. And so the slaves would be brought to market as one of the most liquid forms of capital. Obviously, it's very difficult to sell land. So the slaves would be the first to go, uh, the first choice uh, uh, of, the, of the government. And uh, so the... Uh, sheriff, who was normally the auctioneer, would auction off these slaves, and he was required by law to get the highest possible price uh, in the interest of both the debtor and the creditor. And so, in order to get the highest price, he would sell off the slaves one by one. It's not family by family, but one by one. And this meant that uh, the uh, auction would get the highest price possible for the individual slave uh, because, you know, someone might need a seamstress, someone might need uh, a cook, uh, someone might need uh, somebody to run errands into town. 
in back. And so this meant that if you were auctioning them off one by one, you'd get the highest demand for that slave and therefore the highest price, which met the conditions for the, the, the law. But also the auctioneer or the sheriff uh, got a commission on the total sales uh, at the auction. And so he had an economic incentive as well as a legal requirement to get the best uh, possible price. And this meant selling slaves off one by one rather than family by family. And so at the county auction is really where most of the slaves uh, and most of the slave families were broken up. Okay. So again, interesting. And for to repeat, to make sure people see the relevance here of that um, observation that it's ironic that one of the most morally uh, egregious aspects of slavery of breaking up families is again, not occurring under the administration of the quote free market, but it's, you know, the, the government official who's doing it. And it's, I suppose we could say, Mark, in fairness, you know, bankruptcies and, you know, having to seize property and whatever to pay off your creditors, you know, that that's arguably something that would happen under a total laissez-faire system anyway, but certainly to the extent that it was because you didn't pay your taxes and they went and grabbed some of your slaves and auctioned them off one by one, that's clearly not because of the free market. That's because of state intervention. Yeah, free market transfers of slaves would be like selling your slave locally, trading them, bartering them, or hiring or leasing them out. And there was uh, virtually no likelihood of families being permanently broken up as a result of those typical tri- types of transaction. It's really only at the public auction where you're dealing with bankruptcy, tax delinquency, and uh, that you really find families being broken up on a major major way. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, slaves brought to commercial auctions uh, rather than the government auction, but slaves brought to commercial auctions were also highly unlikely to be broken up. And the reason families would not be broken up is because when families are broken up, they run away. And commercial auctions were required to provide the buyer with an implied guarantee. So if you went to the commercial auction and you bought a bale of cotton and you brought it, you know, to wherever you were going to bring it and you opened the bale of cotton up and it had hay in the middle of it, then you could take that as a grievance back to the commercial auction and they would provide you with an implied guarantee and make the um, seller give back the money. Uh, But the commercial auction was liable for that. So they, they, they guaranteed that with an implied uh, warranty. And so as a result, commercial auctions in the free market did not want to break up families because of the high probability of runaways. And so these commercial auctions kept the families together and sold them uh, as a unit. So you'd take an extended family, auction it off, and, uh, and that would... Uh, prevent anybody from really uh, coming back on the commercial auction and saying, hey, we didn't get what we wanted. These slaves all ran away. Or, you know, the slaves could have cancer or tuberculosis or something like that. Uh, So commercial auctions had to inspect the product uh, very often to make sure there was no uh, or very little chance that the buyer could come back to the commercial auction and say, I want my money back. Mm Mm-hmm. It, wow. This, I mean, yeah, I've never even heard of this stuff. This is amazing. And uh, again, just to to push the 
the standard line here about the benefits of markets and competition versus a state monopoly. This wasn't just because of the goodness of their heart. We're not saying, oh, the sheriff was a bad guy and these these auctioneers in the private sector were all benevolent and you know just doing the best they could for these poor unfortunate souls. It was because of competition that if if the you know if you went to auction and you into one of these privately held ones and you bought a slave who ran away, you know that's bad for business. And so a different auctioneer, you know, with different procedures in place, would would just be able to retain their clientele more. That the, you know the plantation owners bidding on slaves going to the place where they never had a bad experience, they would keep going back there. And so that's the incentives. Whereas if if you bought, you know, the sheriff is breaking up families and auctioning them off, and then one of those slaves runs away, you know, you have much less. You're not going to say, you know, what, I'm going to go to a different sheriff next time, right? That the, the you know, he's got his job. He's there because of government appointment, and so he can auction. So given that he's auctioning them off, people are going to show up, and and you know, and presumably the prices they paid for the broken up families, you know, the slaves from a, a family breakup, they would have taken into account. There's a higher likelihood of this slave running away when they were making bids. But still, that's that's just showing why there wasn't this market competitive process, giving getting the sheriff to take that into account and say, "Wow, I better not break these families up because then, um, you know, people the slave might run away and then people will get mad at me because again, he's he's there. It's not part of the market process. He's there because of taxation, or he's kind of seizing this these goods, as it were, these assets, and selling them off and getting a cut. That's right. And you know, at those county auctions, uh, generally speaking. The local population, if they were bidding on the slaves, they would try to keep the families together knowing that the runaway problem existed. But there were also slave traders um, who had agents at these auctions. So uh, sometimes they would be looking for a very particular type of worker, like a blacksmith uh, slave. And so uh, that slave traders, uh, which is, you know, part of the market, they were part of the problem as well. Mm -hmm. I guess the, um, the remaining time here we have, Mark, can you just, because you've, you've read much, obviously much more of these these perspectives from the, the historians who link, you think capitalism and slavery go hand in hand, and that when we think about capitalism, you know, the legacy of slavery should always be front and center. And then, you know, you're trying to rebut their arguments. Can you give us any insight into what the, I don't want to say motivation is, but where I'm coming from is it's kind of ironic that people whose careers are built on, you know, uh, making sure Americans don't forget this horrible thing that happened to black Americans, black slaves, and how, you know, the legacy is reverberating through. And so people whose careers are focused on highlighting and never letting people forget the horrors of slavery, it's ironic that they're the ones who are implicitly also telling the world, you know, slavery is a pretty good economic system, right? So if your country has widespread slavery, you're going to do well. That might actually catapult you in, you know, ranking against other nations. It's just, it's a moral abomination, but it's actually a very productive, efficient system. Whereas we're the ones, you know, and we're accused of not caring and thinking, but we're the ones that say, no, actually it's a, it's a horribly inefficient system. So do you, do you see how that's kind of ironic that you might've thought it'd be the other way around that put it to you a different way? No, no uh, ruthless dictator reading our research and your your papers in particular, Mark, is going to conclude, huh, the way I'm going to get ahead, because I'm just going to put morals aside, it's just all real politique. The way I'm going to get ahead is enslave a, a relatively weak 10% of our population and put them to work, you know, in munitions factories under watch and, you know, lock and key. 
they wouldn't conclude that because all of our research says, no, that would be inefficient. You're going to actually have a more productive economy, bigger tax base if you have otherwise free laborers. Whereas as people reading these historians who would think if I'm going to put my moral scruples aside, it looks like enslaving a decent chunk of the population is the key to success. Well, you know, when you look at these new economic historians, I think that they uh, have a Marxist orientation and uh, that they're here to blame capitalism for all problems, and they they basically ignore the history part of it, which is, if you read my papers, it's, you know, I'm distilling down the traditional uh, economic historians that existed prior to the new economic historians or cleometric uh, types, and they they definitely have, uh, you know, a anti-market bias, and if they do know the true history rather than just the numbers, then they're consciously uh, trying to mislead uh, the public. And by and large, uh, that tends to work, unfortunately. And, uh, you know, they've, they've essentially won the day. When I was in college uh, taking history classes, and in particular uh, a class on uh, the Civil War, the American Civil War, uh, you know, it, back then, so many decades ago, uh, you know, I thought you were his- like thirty-five. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. Um, this is like thirty-five years ago, uh, or or more. And uh, basically, the the history book that we looked at was written by an eminent economic historian, uh, traditional economic historian, and I think it listed eight different causes uh, for the Civil War. And one of those, only one of those, was slavery, and uh, and the, but there were technical reasons why slavery was considered one of the causes. Uh, fast forward to today, uh, sixty years or so since the Cleometric Revolution, uh, it only says nowadays the, the cause of the Civil War was slavery. That's it. Case closed, and uh, and so they've really won the day. Uh, they've dominated the profession. Uh, the traditional economic historians uh, certainly have no uh, power or authority in the economics profession. And of course, uh, the history profession has bought into this in terms of academic historians have bought into this hook, line, and sinker as well. Uh, they've also been brought up in the progressive Marxist mindset, even if they never had a true Marxist professor you know, a, a mm-hmm. hardcore card carrying type of Marxist. Uh, it's still permeating uh, the social science, social science instruction in colleges and universities all across the country. And so it's just basically an ideological battle that we've lost. Uh, but it's also a scientific battle that we've lost. And I've tried to stick my nose in here. Um, I started this looking into this topic of slavery 30 years ago, we were uh, at Mises University uh, having a general discussion and somebody asked Robert Higgs, uh, you know, why why did we have the Civil War? And he said, well, of course it was slavery. And I stood up and I said, no, that's not the, that's not the reason. I know that for sure. Uh, I hadn't read much about the topic at the time. You know, you mentioned Mises and human action. Um, and uh, and maybe a little bit of other stuff, but it was an enormous, interesting literature out there uh, on this topic, and I've tried to cover it as best I could. 
Well, yeah, so great stuff here, Mark. Thank you for this uh, enlightening conversation. And folks, so this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 71 if you want to see the links that I'll put to some of Mark's stuff that's available online to get more of the details. Uh, So Mark, as always, thank you for your time. And uh, we just applaud your work and everything you're doing on this and on business cycles and all the good stuff you're doing. Thank you very much, Bob. Thanks for listening, folks, and we'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.